Uh, folks, you are listening to the sounds, the groovy sounds of the Countdown 5. You'll hear me tell Mac Hayes this same story, but it bears repeating because we get so many CDs at the station that they sort of all begin to kind of sound alike. You know, 60s band, only regional success and a bunch of covers, a few originals, and they never broke through. End of story. They're, you know... And there's some charming things in that genre, but there's few that jump out like this one did to me. Just kind of the the level of experimentation, and also on the, this new double CD release, you can really see the growth of this band. Also, they're from Texas, from a scene on the beach in Galveston that I just wasn't familiar with at all, and it turns out that really they started that scene out. So, super interesting story, and I love guests like this that listen to your question, answer them, and are polite and uh, on time and prepared and uh, have great memories. So uh, shout out to Matt Hayes. Thank you. Uh, Check out his website. There's tons more to the story, tons more information, and he's been making music for 50 years. Uh, I didn't even get into his tenure with uh, Liza, so check out those stories on his website. Uh, The Countdown 5, folks. Check WFMU.org slash Michael. You'll see the list of upcoming guests. And enjoy this interview with Mac Hayes of the Countdown Five. All right, there is the Countdown 5 from this new release we've been talking about, the complete recordings, and Mac Hayes joins us on the telephone, a member of the Countdown 5. Good morning, Mac. How are you? Good morning, Michael. I'm doing fine. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. You know, we get a lot of reissue CDs at the station, and... There's always a few good tracks, or there's of some sort of historical value, or there, you know, there's these. There, there were. It seems like there was a time in the '60s when you guys existed, where there were just a million bands, and they all made records, and you know, 99% of them kind of faded. They, they were more of a live uh, act than a, a recording act, and uh, it seems like that is sort of the case for you guys. But uh, so usually, I listen to these CDs and. They're not that interesting, but this one really caught my ear. There's, there's, you can really sort of see the evolution of the band and the music you guys were making was very sophisticated. Uh, you must be very excited that the CD is out. Oh, we've been uh, flabbergasted by that. As a matter of fact, to, uh, to come back fifty years later has been something extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, so the original band, there was a band called D and the Dominoes, and I'll race through this part. Uh, formed in 1962, you joined pretty soon after that. There was a, some shuffling of members, and then soon uh, the lineup was completed. And you guys played in the area of Texas, Galveston Beach. Tell me about what that area was like at that time in the mid-60s. Where is it in America, and who went to go see bands at that time? Well, we really kind of started down on the on the Galveston Beach. Actually, it was just a little place that sold beer through a window, but they had a 8 by 10 concrete slab on the side, and we were all really kids at the time. This is about 63, I guess. And I convinced them that they'd let us play on that slab. They, on Saturday and Sunday afternoon, said, uh, 
sell more beer. And they started doing that. And by the end of that summer, they had already started expanding the place. And by the next year, they hired us for the season uh, from like March through September to play six nights a week and two afternoons. And they had, by that time, they had built an actual building that would hold around three or 400 people. And that kind of started a thing down on Galveston Beach that went on for, oh, a few decades. And it was the spot for all the college kids for the summer. And they came down from all over the country. And it was just an incredible place. When we started there, we were doing the dominoes. And within the next year or two, we had, for other reasons, had changed the name to the Countdown Five. And that's where it stayed. So was the name of this club the Bamboo Hut? Is that what we're talking about? It's called the Bamboo Hut. We played there for something like four seasons or five seasons, and then one of our big fans out of that group um, decided he wanted his own place, and so he went next door and built a bigger spot called the Grass Menagerie and hired us over there, and we played there as the house band for about another two or three seasons. So walk me through that, a, a typical busy day playing at the Hut or the man- Menagerie. There's a lot of college students, I assume they've been drinking. What time did you start? What time did you finish up? What were the sets? Uh, How long were the sets? (laughs) It was really a salute to youth, I'll tell you that, because we played six nights a week, five hours a night, and then afternoons, uh, two, uh, you know, Saturday and Sunday afternoons included, and that was another four hours each time. And uh, because it was down on the beach and it was open air, although it was covered, you know, big roof and all that, but it was open air, you had to sit down, uh, set up and break down every night. So it, it was quite an ordeal in that respect. Yeah. But uh, it was absolutely a madhouse. Uh, <laughs> like I say, it was tons of kids. The Bamboo Hut originally would accommodate about 300 people or so. And then they built it up before we left, and it would accommodate something like six or 700 people. And then the Grass Menagerie would even accommodate more than that. And they would charge a cover charge towards the end of the time, and they would turn the crowd over maybe two or three times, and it would be packed. And, and it was a lot of drunk kids. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there was a cover charge. How much money would you guys, would the, the band, make on one of these uh, five-hour nights of playing or days of playing? You know, I'm I'm not going to be, I I can't be really, I I can't remember exactly what we made, but for the time, it was very good money. Uh, I think we were making something like two or two fifty and a show, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was like eight eight performances a week, and uh, back then that was really good money. Yeah, I can. I mean, it's yeah, I can imagine for especially um, you're still living at home, right? And uh, expenses are and free beer probably. Uh, I mean, this is uh, uh, none of my business, but I imagine lots of college uh, ladies around that the band met a lot of friends that way. I know nothing about that, Your Honor. <laughs> <laughs> right. no, yes, it was. there were a lot of a lot of gals, and uh, yeah, a lot of temptations in that in that regard. But uh, but but the craziness of it all, I mean, every night and every day there was always some. And of course, there were a lot of drunken fights and stuff like that. And uh, the stories could go on endlessly, believe me. Actually, some of our biggest fans back then, I won't really mention names, but they later went on to become pillars of, of the Galveston community, very wealthy and all that sort of thing. And back then, they were, you know, running buddies of ours down there on the beach. 
And it was not unusual at all on a Friday and Saturday night for us to finish playing at 2 o'clock in the morning, and they'd hire us to pack everything up and go to one of their houses and play till 4 <laughs> o'clock in the morning or 6 yeah. o'clock. That's funny. So the frat boys end up running the whole town uh, 10 years later, 20 years later. So tell me, was the community supportive of this scene? I mean, it sounds like in you know similar scenes didn't last long because people just, you know, enough – hosing down the the throw up in the mornings you know people just couldn't deal or the police called too many times but it sounds like this lasted a while how how come it did last a while i I guess it's because they kept it somewhat under control you know when we started it was right at the end of what they used to call splash day and that was like you know the uh beaches in in uh florida and everything where all the college kids would come and that got way out of hand and by the time we had played probably two seasons, I think maybe our second season at the Bamboo Hut, um, by midsummer, the, or by the end of those splash days, which was like a two-week spring break type period, they had brought in the National Guard to shut down the beach. And then they ended splash days in terms of that spring break occasion. But the beachfront properties, and there were – there was another place called the College Inn, and I think there was one more spot, but I can't remember the name of it. So there were three or four places down there doing that kind of business, and and I know they lasted through the 70s and on into the 80s, I think. So if folks, just to picture it, Galveston Beach, I believe, is sort of a little strip off of the coast. It's on the Gulf of Mexico, and it's not too far from Houston. And in fact, it's not even that far from it's, – it's right on the border of Louisiana almost. So there's a lot of action that that could go to that area. Is, is it still a vacation spot now? I mean, is it still a, a, a beach spot? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it, it's had quite a – rebirth since the early 80s galveston itself as a, as a resort area uh, had kind of gone into decline you know it was so big during the 50s with the balinese room and and uh the illegal gambling and all that sort of thing that went on uh that was a big time in in galveston with all the bob hope and all these people coming and performing and then they cracked down on the gambling part of it and except for the beachfront thing the resort area itself began to sort of decline. And uh, Mr. Mitchell, George Mitchell, the famous oil man from Galveston, decided to start picking it back up. And in the early 80s, he started pouring a lot of money into Galveston, building new hotels and nightclubs and restaurants and pushing uh, the uh, Mardi Gras again and all that sort of thing. And he really brought back a rebirth of Galveston, and it's flourishing now. So take me back to uh, uh, when a band is playing to a bunch of partying teenagers for five hours. What percent, I mean, I, I assume you started as a cover and slowly started to add originals. That seems to be what a lot of bands do. Is that what you guys did? Yes, we we were a, strictly a cover band for the first two or three years, I guess, three or four years maybe even. And not only a cover band, but really we were kind of into the show thing in terms of, of a lot of fooling around and and uh, dealing with the audience and doing uh, even choreography and and uh, that sort of thing, uh, medleys and a, a lot of up-tempo, high-energy stuff. And then we we had a couple of things. Uh, we, we were able to procure a guy uh, to, to manage us, 
So we brought in a manager, and that's where it kind of began to turn around and become more focused on trying to break out. Well, let me let's talk about how how did you pick covers? Would it be uh, you know a new song came on the radio and you guys would run to the store buy a forty five and figure it out and add it to your show as soon as possible? I mean, how did you pick what songs to add cover wise? Well, actually, we that's pretty much kind of a preference thing, and uh, like I said, we were a high energy rock and pop rock and roll band. We weren't blues and uh, and we weren't country. And that sort of thing. We liked the high energy stuff, and, and playing down on the beach obviously was a big influence on that because you know you didn't do many ballads down on the beach. Yeah. Uh, you had to keep everybody rocking and, and having a great time. Yeah. So you get signed to do this TV show, weekly TV show called Impact, and I guess the producers want you to change your name, so you pick the countdown five. I assume TV was a big deal back then, and was this a show that all the young folks watched? Yeah, we seemed to get a, a, a lot of good response off of it. It only lasted, a, a, I think, one season, uh, so it was not enough to uh, keep going. There was a local TV show in Houston called The Larry Kane Show that was a kind of a uh, bandstand-type show, mm. and that really dominated the air, airways down here. This show was designed to sort of mimic the Dick Clark show with Paul Revere and the Raiders. Uh, where the action is, I think. Where the action is, yeah. This was uh, kind of formatted after that. And the guy had seen us playing, the producer had seen us playing in Galveston, and we were kind of a Raiders-type band in, in, in our concept, you know, with a high energy and, and Tom, you know, fooling around and having a good time. And uh, so he came up with that idea of doing the show called Impact that was all uh, recorded in Galveston. We filmed it down there. We would do uh, go to different places in Galveston and, uh, you know, do cover songs and all this tomfoolery type, you know, monkeys type raider stuff. Were you college age at this time or were you still in high school? Uh, we, when we first started, we were seniors in high school. And uh, then right after that, into college. Okay, so you guys started making records. In fact, one of the first records is sort of an ode to that that club you mentioned earlier, the the Bamboo Hut. And the early records, as you can hear on this new CD, are very garagey. But very quickly, uh, the sound uh, changes. And I mean, I would just assume that part of that is from playing so much, you guys got really good. Am I right that you, I mean, I don't know if you can judge this objectively, but were you guys really good? We we were really good together. In terms of musicianship, especially uh, uh, there were three guys, three out of the five of us, that really progressed uh, exponentially, and, and that was the uh, drummer, Tommy Williams, and uh, the bass player, Tommy Murphy, which really became the bedrock of the band. And then John Bowser was our left-handed lead guitar player, and all of them sang. And Bowser was really a consummate musician. I mean, he was the real deal. And I was a singer, lead singer, front man, and then Stephen Long was our uh, uh, pianist or keyboard player and uh, sax player. And Stephen and I filled out the, the group. But those three were really the just progressed uh, incredibly musician-wise, and that showed up in the recordings. 
Mm. So how many 45s did you guys make, and how did they sell at the time? How many that were actually released? Um, I want to say there were maybe four or five 45s, you know, two on, you know, two, even one on each side, that were actually released during that time period. And I don't know that we got that many sales out of it, but we got a lot of exposure out of those records. There were two of them that actually charted uh, on the Billboard 100, although I have not been able to find that either. But supposedly I- I'd seen that back in the day. That's interesting. Yeah, I've read that in your uh, in your in your press uh, information. Perhaps it's uh, an exaggeration. Perhaps not. Uh, it, it's. Inter- I read that you guys were part owners of a recording studio, Andrus Productions. Why would a bunch of young men uh, buy into a recording studio? Well, that was the deal about um, when we got a manager. We signed up uh, a manager who took control of our business, and that was one of the main things that we did that was so much different from virtually all the rock and roll bands back at that time, you know, local bands. And he really organized us. And this was when we decided that that we needed to start writing our own music and recording if we were going to break out of just being a party band. And one of the ways to do that in our uh, mind was to become involved in a studio. So we had met Walt Andrus who was just an amazing guy. And we decided to buy into the company itself. And uh, we did so, became stockholders in the company, then really put our heads together and started recording. Oh, it's interesting. You guys were, because of your uh, prowess and fame, became sort of the go-to opening act for bands that would come through. Can you remember some particularly amazing experiences of seeing acts who, who blew you guys away? Yeah, we were uh, we were probably well we were the uh, opening act for uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders on, on the first time they ever came to Houston. It was actually a place called La Maison, and it was a teenage place, and it was actually an old grocery store that a guy had bought and cleared out and turned it into a teenage nightclub, and it would hold about two or three thousand kids, I guess it was. And um, that was the first time they ever came to Houston, and we were the opening act for them, which was really exciting for us because we thought they were one of the hottest bands, and obviously we uh, kind of patterned ourselves after them in terms of uh, the theory of what we were trying to do. And we also uh, opened, I know we got really excited one day, our manager came in and said, well, you're going to open for the Dave Clark Five. And the Dave Clark Five was second only to the Beatles in the world at that time. And so we were saying, great, where are we going, L.A., New York, where, overseas? <laughs> and he said, no, actually, Nederland, Texas. <laughs> and Nederland, Texas is a sleepy little town just outside of Beaumont, Texas, here, not too far from Houston. And uh, we didn't even know there was a venue that would, that would hold that kind of thing. But there was a, a venue there that would hold, I think, something like 5,000 people. And uh, sure enough, it was Dave Clark Five we opened for them. Were they good? Yeah, they were great. They were great. And uh, that kind of started us on that trend, uh, first of all, of getting mobbed and all that sort of thing. You know, that was going on with all the Beatlemania. And we had not become accustomed to that until we uh, did the thing with the Dave Clark Five and then kind of got mobbed and started 
seeing what that was about. But then our records had gotten played really down through the Gulf Coast because we used to play from Texas to Mississippi, even into Alabama and that sort of thing, Louisiana, uh, what we call the I-10 circuit. And we played a lot of the major colleges and that sort of thing. And that's how the promoters kind of picked up on us, especially being a showy band, to open for the national acts when they made their Gulf Coast swing. Because the kids, the kids mostly knew us almost as good as they did the national acts down in this part of the country because of our records. Gotcha. Uh, you guys are from Texas, and although the recent election results show that Texas might be slowly changing, you know, it's a pretty conservative place. So uh, how did uh, – did were you universally liked and accepted? Because it seems like, uh, you know, long hair and crazy outfits might not go over 100% in Texas. Am I right? Oh, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> Back then, whenever we had the long hair and, the, and uh, that sort of look – that was still kind of sketchy. Uh, I know we had to be careful. We were on the road a lot and would, you know, like go into diners or something like that at 2 o'clock in the morning. You had to be very careful because we had more than our fair share of, uh, you know, guys wanting to, to hassle us and that sort of thing. Mm. But that kind of evened out over time. So why do you think that the band never broke on a national level? Because... Uh, listening to these recordings, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's a new CD out called Complete Recordings 1965 to 69 on the Gear Fab label. Uh, and some of these records sound like hits to me, you know, in every way. The songs are good, the performances are good, the recordings are good, and just the kind of the palette, the sonic palette sounds so much like what was on the radio then. What was missing? That is the. $64,000 question, as they used to say <laughs> decades ago. Um, and I'm never, I, I'm not really sure. It's it's really that thing about, well, back whenever we were doing it, it was a one to five million in one shot, you know, yeah, at, yeah. At making it. Nowadays, it would have to be a hundred million. But uh, back then, it was really long odds. And I don't think very few people <laughs> ever figured that out. Yeah, it's not really a fair question. If you knew the answer, you would have made the hit record or you would have done that thing. You know, I had a guy, uh, I had Carl from the Buckinghams on a, a few weeks ago, and I just for fun was looking at the charts on the week that they had number one with kind of a drag. And every song that, you know, was in the top 40 that week pretty much is kind of a classic song. You know, it was, the competition was so, so hard. It was, uh, you know, the quality of music being made was amazing. But, uh, yeah, sometimes I think it's just luck or it's who you bribed or, you know, there's just so many, uh, so many factors that went into it. Did you guys ever think we should move to Los Angeles or New York or, because uh, you guys were, I think you were that good. Did you ever think you should have done that? Well, that was that was discussed, and that was the situation back then. You were expected to move to New York or to California and pretty much starve to death. In other <laughs> words, go out there and live in uh, some house, you know, all five of you plus other people trying to trying to make a, a you know, a hit. And the odds really you know, you go out there. We were more business inclined in that. that. That's all I can tell you. We, by the time we started the, the heavy recording and all that sort of thing, 
we were, I think all of us were married and uh, nearly all of us had at least one child. And we all grew up in blue collar households with a certain work ethic and responsibility and, you know, in, in making your own way and that sort of ideal, which was not really a, a musician's thinking back in that time period, you know. Mm. Uh, and we were kind of different from everybody in that respect. We we desperately were working very hard to try to, quote, make it, unquote. But we were unwilling to give up our families and just go to New York or L.A. and uh, live out of a trash can and, <laughs> and hope that somebody would finally see us, you know. Now, yeah. we did get... We did get a couple of good shots. Uh, like I say, with our records, we got uh, enough uh, attention that I remember we, uh, my, the guitar player and I, were sent to uh, L.A. because Anders Productions had gone into a deal with uh, some people out there, uh, a guy by the name of Don Altfeld, which uh, was a promoter out there. He was also a songwriter. He wrote uh, Little Old Lady from Pasadena uh, for... Uh, what is it, Jan and Dean? Mm. Uh, he wrote several of their hits and that sort of thing. So he had a lot of connections, and uh, he was really interested in our group and and uh, brought us out there and introduced us around and played the records. Got in to play the records for some people, but it just never caught the the big. I don't know if you remember a guy named Lou Adler. Sure, uh, Lou Adler at, at that time was the one of the gods of of the rock and roll recording field. Uh, wherever he, you know, placed his hand, that's where you were, you were blessed and, and you could make it. And I remember all felt really got us, uh, actually got us a meeting with him one morning, like 1130 in the morning at his mansion uh, in LA. And this will give you an idea of what I'm trying to say is we got there. Servant came to the door, let us in, said, uh, he'll be in in a minute probably about 45 minutes or an hour went by, and finally Lou Adler walks in in a bathrobe and his hair all tousled. Obviously, he had just drug himself out of bed and was uh, obviously hung over real bad. And we, you know, I felt said, hey, this is uh, Mac and this is John, and so-and-so got this record here. And he never acknowledged this or anything. He went over to the bar and poured himself a drink and said, yeah, put it over there on the bar, I'll get to it. That was the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Showbiz, yeah. Uh, let me remind folks that Mac Hayes is our guest this morning and the band called The Countdown 5. This new record really, uh, uh, there's a lot going on on it and uh, really caught my attention. There's some early catchy kind of garage stuff on it. There is some stuff that, like I said, has that kind of Paul Revere sound or that kind of, you know, very 60s radio-friendly sound. There's some things, there's some covers, like a cover of Willie and the Hand Drive that I imagine you guys could just toss off in your sleep. Uh, there's some kind of fuzzy, Beatles-y almost records. You could tell you guys were sort of experimenting in the studio and learning the studio. That's one of the things about listening to this record. You can sort of hear the sound progress. And then the second disc is almost all unreleased stuff. Why did this stuff never come out? It just never got a chance to. Uh, a lot of it was done towards the end of Andrus Productions. You know, Andrus Productions eventually went under. And a lot of it was done towards the end of that, so there wasn't the the actual energy and enthusiasm getting it out there to get released. And 
that was the thing that amazed me from Roger Maglio with Gear Fab Records whenever he contacted me back in the spring and said he had bought all the masters up. Well, we were we were part owners in the place, and we didn't know what happened to the masters. And so that I don't know how the heck he got a hold of them 50 years later, but but that was pretty extraordinary. Now we do know because two of the songs on there that that were our biggest songs. Uh, Uncle Kirby from Brazil and uh, Shekinana, those two I found out in the 90s when I first put up my website, I found out that those two records had been put on on, uh, compilation albums in Europe in the 70s. I started getting, uh, they were on my website, obviously, as part of my bio, and I started getting emails from people in Europe, Spain, France, England, Saying, "Oh yeah, we remember those songs. We used to dance to them in the in the discos in the '70s in Europe, and we never knew that." As a matter of fact, somebody mailed us, uh, emailed me a Billboard Top 100 German chart, and for like a two-week period of time or something, Shekinana was number one in Germany in 1968. <laughs> so That's go crazy. figure. Yeah, that's that's very unusual that he was able to buy the. Uh, masters. I mean, do you think that in, that somehow there's something a little screwy with that? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I don't think there's anything screwy on uh, Roger Maglio's part. I mean, he's got a long yeah. uh, career. He's been doing this since the 80s, and he's very... Uh, believe me, I checked him out before we ever signed uh, you know, publishing contact with him. But did you guys feel that you owned... Part, that you already owned them? You know, that they were someone else's to sell? Uh Right, we we certainly thought we owned part uh, part of them as part of the business, but let me tell you, you know, in the '60s, that was pretty much standard operating procedure. Uh, nobody really got the money they were supposed to get in the '60s in the bands, and that includes the Beatles, the Stones, <laughs> and then when you go down to our level, you can see there was just no way, nothing. Yeah. Well, I've heard that story a million times. So in 1969, the band disbanded. Why? It had just kind of run its normal course. By that time, we were, I think, running out of ideas and uh, energy. We, we were just simply playing to make a living, and which was okay. We, that's what we all wanted to do, is, that, is uh, make a living as musicians, and, uh, which was very unusual, too, to be able to do at that time. And uh, we were succeeding in that. But uh, it, it just got to a point where, well, actually, what had happened is one of the guys decided, uh, Tommy Murphy, the bass player, decided that he wanted a, to get out of the music business and do something else. And then almost within a matter of months of that, we had an offer to uh, to go with Liza Minnelli to, to work. And so there were three of us still together at that time of the original five. And so the three of us signed up with, to go with her with, with this guy that, that was uh, from another band that was with her at the time and uh, to form a group called the Wire Band. It's a, such an interesting story, and it's hard to believe that these recordings are 50 years old. Some of them sound so fresh. Uh, so you did tour with Liza for a few years, and uh, there's some interesting stories how you made uh, some music for the Astros and the Houston Oilers. Uh, folks can read about it 
uh, on your some huge records uh, c- connected to those two teams on your website, which I believe is MacHayes.com. And you're still playing. I mean, you 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 owned a club, uh, but you've been playing this whole fifty years, and you're still playing today. And I know that everyone in the band is still alive, right? Are they all still friends? Oh yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's it's amazing, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, three of us, uh, myself, Tommy Williams, and Tommy Murphy pretty much grew up together from about the sixth grade on. So we were longtime buddies. And then when we brought Steve and uh, John into the band, then it became like family, and it's pretty much been that way ever since. That's very uh, even, sweet. Yeah, even though the band disbanded back in 69, we've all remained close friends. Uh, well, Mac Hayes, I think folks, am I right? They can still see you Friday and Saturday nights at the Sundance Grill 2 in Kema, Texas. Is that right? Kema, Texas, yeah. Mm-hmm. Kima, Texas. And what's your set like these days? Are you still doing songs that you did 50 years ago? That's the, that's the irony of it all. They, that has been the most lasting music of any that I know of. I do, uh, of course, I do a variety of things. I do, uh, obviously, a lot of classic rock, a lot of uh, pop music. But I do some Sinatra stuff, you know, easy listening, that, some country, a little bit of everything like that. But it's all pre-80s, you know. Gotcha. Uh, I don't do hardly anything from the late 80s on. Gotcha. Uh, like I said, there's more information about all of this, including the CD, over at MacHayes.com. I want to play Don't Buy Meat from the Milkman, maybe my favorite track uh, on this CD. It's one of the unreleased, uh, previously unreleased ones. It's very kind of kinks sounding to me. It's very sophisticatedly recorded and arranged. Uh, do you remember recording this? I mean, do you remember how long it took? Do you remember? I don't know who wrote the song. Where did it come from? And uh, do, do you are, are you a fan of it? Oh yeah, I'm a fan of it. It, I, it now I, you're going to catch me on this because I can't remember. Uh, we had to sit down and work on this before the publishing company ever, you know, before we signed with the publishing as to who wrote what. Uh, I think that was written by three of us. But it, the idea was that uh, you know it was back then. You tried to use all this uh, weird phrasing and everything to say what you wanted to say. And, of course, that was like, uh, if you're going to get information, go to the right place. Don't don't buy it from the wrong place. That was essentially what it was about. And, uh, yeah, it, it none of it really took so long to, to record. Uh, our recording sessions were, uh, d- tended to be, yeah, pretty extensive. But we, since we had part ownership, we had pretty much free reign of the place. And that, thanks to Walt, you were talking about us learning in this curve, and and he is who accelerated that. And uh, also, John Bowser, our guitar player, was an excellent, became an excellent engineer, and uh, and he was very good in the studio. Period. And a lot of that was uh, was a big help. But uh, we we did take our time in the studio and work on it. Uh, but we did a lot of partying in the studio too. I mean, he, <laughs> You can tell by Shake and Nana and a couple of the other songs like that yeah, that yeah. were, uh, we must have had 30 or 40 people in the studio that were doing crowds. Uh, well, I think this song is a total number one hit record. Uh, let's hear it now. And Matt Hayes, uh, thanks for spending this Saturday morning with us. I, I really, just what a great story and just, you know, great music. Michael, I thank you very much. We're excited about this and it's been a, just a heck of a lot of fun. Sunrise finds him 
him standing there Knocking on your door Place your orders as prescribed Just his daily chore Bow tie, white shirt, pants on breast Sunshine trims his pale Phrase may catch you unaware Cheat you. 